Would you join me in prayer? Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Ermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. We are grateful. Grateful to you, Father. Your kindness and goodness is breathtaking. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebelliousness, you show mercy. You offer grace. We thank you for loving us, not because we deserve it, but you love us because you are love. And it displays your glory. We come before you today with countless flaws and challenges and pains. We pray that you would apply your gentle balm of Gilead over our souls. That you would give us healing, that you would give us comfort, that you would give us peace in Christ, that you would give us hope. Give us strength, Lord, give us joy by your Spirit. Lord, I stand here today fully aware of my own flaws. I have nothing to offer these people but weakness and failure and sin. I plead for your filling, for your anointing. I pray that you might speak to your people And that you would make us all more like Christ today. I pray that the human preacher that stands here today would be invisible and mute. That your people would see and hear only you. May it be so. Make it so for the sake of our spiritually dark community. Make it so for our own edification and sanctification. Make it so for your great and marvelous glory. We pray today in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Acts chapter 10 and 11. It's kind of a little bit redundant, but um, it's a very important passage. I don't think that we're going to say anything today that is novel to anyone in this room. You're familiar with these truths. You've heard them. You would agree with them, I believe. But it's good for us to rehearse them. It's good for us to remind ourselves. I believe that God can use this powerfully in our own lives. You see, the passage focuses upon a divide, a divide among people, something that we're not unfamiliar with. We know in our society, we see it played out, represented in so many different ways. This separation that is discussed in this chapter has a host of cultural ramifications. It presented a big problem, a huge problem for the gospel and for the church. The good news is that God's never taken by surprise by anything. 
God always is working his plan, bringing about his purposes. He was working to ensure that this problem did not subvert or fragment the gospel. There are four key things I want us to think about this morning, discuss this morning, and see how we might apply them to our present day and to our lives and our society. So first, I want you to recognize, to see here that walls separate and destroy. Walls separate and destroy. That's what's on display. Let me explain. We see, first of all, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman soldier. He's a centurion. He, ra- he rules, he reigns, he rides roughshod. He bosses 100 soldiers. Now, we know enough about history to know that Roman soldiers were, were a tough bunch. They were not to be messed with. We also understand that Jews and Gentiles didn't see eye to eye. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, a Gentile was someone who was simply a non-Israelite, someone who was not descended from Adam, had no connection uh, to Abraham, I'm sorry, connected to Abraham, not connected to Abraham. Now, there wasn't the animosity and hatred that we see in the New Testament present in the Old Testament. In fact, God's people were encouraged to be hospitable uh, to all people. But harsh treatment at the hands of Gentile captors changed how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. And in the New Testament, hatred between Jews and Gentiles became the norm. The Jews were taught to strictly obey the laws that God had given, which involved dietary laws, sacrificial laws. They were to live their lives distinctly from the world. They drew back upon the giving of the law and the separation that God instructed for his people to remain apart from people. And they took that really at face value. The Gentiles were the antithesis of what it meant to be a Jew. They ate anything. They lived lives that were licentious and served to uh, cater to their own fleshly desires and wants. They were viewed as heathen. The Jews avoided them at all costs. Then we have Peter. Peter is a Jew, born and raised a Jew. A Jew that has become a follower of Christ. He's now a Christian. He's an apostle. He's a preacher of the gospel. Reared in the law. And if we were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see how a Jew was was, uh, expected to be raised. The parents were instructed to raise their children from the very outset. Teaching them the things of God. In all circumstances, continually throughout the day, from the time they arose until they went back to bed. So Peter, while a fisherman, while uneducated, he hadn't been to a rabbinical school, he certainly had been raised in a home where he was expected to adhere to the things of God. He was a Christian, so committed to living in God-honoring ways was very important to him. He was now a proclaimer of the gospel, a teacher, a preacher. 
So his worldview was radically different from that of a Gentile, particularly a Gentile Roman soldier. Did he have any lingering attitudes toward Gentiles? I think probably he did, as most of us would. Even after coming to Christ, we still deal with certain attitudes that typified us before coming to Christ. Was he affected by the Romans and their treatment of Christ in leading to his crucifixion? It's very likely that he did. Maybe he garnered some hostile, hard feelings toward these Roman soldiers for the way that they treated Jesus. So you see, these two guys came from two separate planets, right? They're coming from two separate places. There's a wall that divides Gentile and Jew. Now, what about you, me, us gathered here today in this room? We don't think in terms of Jew and Gentile in our daily lives, do we? Yet our society is filled with attitudes, with expectations, with behaviors that divide. There are walls literally on every hand in our society. Now, we may appear we convince ourselves that we're pursuing unity, that we're pursuing togetherness. We want to do things together. But the truth of the matter is, most of what we're doing is very superficial, and it only leads to greater separation. We look to the wrong things to promote unity and peace. For instance, today, if you decided to post on your social media that it is a beautiful day, People will line up in droves to like your statement, won't they? Everybody, nobody will have a problem with that. Yes, it's a beautiful day. You just touched a chord in my life. I agree with you. I like it. But if you go add to it and say, maybe express your opinions about masking, about vaccinations, about Disney, about L-B-G-T-Q-R-S-V-U-T-B plus whatever it may be. All those likes are going to turn into something else, aren't they? They're going to turn into a plethora of hateful reactions very quickly. You see, we can pick and choose things that we can all rally around and be supportive of, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we've become unified in any fashion, shape, or form. How are we divided? What separates us? Well, our backgrounds separate us. We live in a world that shrinks because of travel, because of access to different places. And so we no longer have different areas where people are uh, born, raised, live their lives, and die all in the same parameters and so everyone around them is just like them. We're living in a, an area, particularly here in this met metropolitan area, where people are coming from all over the world and living here. So you have lots of different backgrounds, experiences in life, heritages, languages even. And those things can become barriers. They can become walls that divide. Skin color is the most obvious one. It's the one that gets most of the discussion these days. Unhealthy attitudes based upon someone's appearance, prejudices, beliefs. What about politics? 
We have red states and we have blue states. And we have a difference of social philosophies. Geography. We have the coastlines. We have the heartland. We have north. We have south. We have the Midwest. Read any article put out through our objective journalists, and you will find that they often will, maybe intentionally, but certainly, even if it's unintentional, they do it consistently. They divide us according to where you may live, and that makes you a certain kind of person that's different from someone who lives somewhere else. What about age? (laughs) You know, it just hit me this week. Every age bracket has a name assigned to it. And depending upon which age bracket you're in and what name you fall under, then that determines, I guess, you know, where you, uh, where you are on the technological uh, scale. Uh, it determines what kind of clothing you wear and haircuts you get and all those kind of things, or at least it's stereotyped in that way. Aging adults get mocked for not wearing stylish clothes. I'm guilty as charged. And then they get mocked for trying to act young when they do. Young people get taken to task for music, for hair, for clothes. They always have, by the way. Sexuality. It's no longer just a matter of male chauvinism or feminism, is it? The LGBTQ plus has made sure that We have any number of things that involve sexuality that divide us, put walls up. Education, it's public versus private. It's small versus large. It's general versus elite. Birth order. Are you a firstborn? Are you a middle child? Are you the baby of the family? Your career, your hobbies, your entertainment, your technology. What computer brand do you use? I had that conversation just this week. I came away feeling discriminated against. (laughs) Do you see? Then throw in religion or your worldview. Do you see how we've become so fragmented in society? We may not have Jew and Gentile issues, but we've got dividing issues on every hand. We've got walls that pop up overnight or in the course of a conversation that divide us one from the other. And these things are weaponized in our world to separate and divide. Now, sin is the ultimate separation, separating us from God, separating us from one another. Walls divide, and that division always ends in destruction. It ends in destruction. The second thing I want you to see this morning is a sovereign God is always working to achieve His plans and purposes. A sovereign God is always working to achieve His plans and purposes in spite of what we see or don't see. It's not clear how long God was at work in Cornelius' life. But make no mistake, God was at work in Cornelius' life. That seems strange probably to a Jew at the time. 
Cornelius being a Roman soldier. We know we trace back and think about when Jesus was crucified and the centurion who was part of tormenting and making sure that Jesus was killed that day. And then when it was all said and done, said, behold, indeed, this was the Son of God. So we know they can be reached. The text says that Cornelius was devout, that he feared God, that he engaged in benevolence, and that he was prayerful. These are all good things. These are all things we would applaud. These are all things that we would support. And some people have looked at this and said, could it be that Cornelius was actually a convert at this point? Maybe Cornelius had already been changed by the gospel. I don't think that's true because I think when you look in chapter 11, in verse 14, as Paul is sharing, or Peter is sharing the, uh, recounting these events, he says that he told us now in verse 13 that he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So it doesn't seem that Cornelius is redeemed at this point in time, but clearly God was beginning to draw him and work in his life. Making him aware of things, God things, righteous things. Verse 43 in chapter 10 also indicates that he needed to hear the gospel in order to believe. And we have evidence throughout Acts. We see other occasions where devout Jews were encouraged to repent and believe. Their devotion was not enough, not enough to be in right relationship with God. These two men would have been far apart normally, but God was drawing them together in a supernatural way. And make no mistake, it was God doing it. They would not have sat down and planned this on their own. God was doing it. He challenged Peter's background and experience through a vision says he was in a trance. This talks about having a disturbed mind. A disturbed mind. His mind was not functioning as it normally would. He normally would be thinking about a Gentile, maybe in one way, but God was challenging. Challenging the way that his mind was accustomed to thinking and seeing things. And he showed him a vision. And it was a shocking vision to anyone with Peter's heritage because of the dietary limitations that he was accustomed to. And now being told, rise and eat. Eat these foods. Foods that have been declared off limit. Foods that have been declared common and unclean. God's saying, Peter, kill and eat. Three times he made the point to drive it home with force. Three times. So it could not be mistaken. God was working to accomplish his plans and purposes. What was he looking toward? Not a wall that divides. Not looking for a gospel that was to be split in two. One branch going to the Gentiles and one going to the Jews. But one that would bring people together, unify people. 
Which brings us to the third thing I want you to see this morning. The gospel is one message for all people. One message for all people. God shows no partiality. He knows no distinction with race, gender, nationality, education. Whatever subject you want to pick, whatever topic you want to pick, God shows no partiality. It says, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right. Now, what is he saying? What does he mean by this? Is he implying that it's a work salvation? Can we simply fear God, do right things, and gain salvation? No, that would simply be another, another partiality, wouldn't it? Because none of us would ever be exactly alike in our level of goodness and our level of rightness. It is true that we must be right before God. We must be righteous before God. But you and I cannot be righteous on our own. We cannot be righteous without the righteousness of Christ. And so he's saying all people, it doesn't matter what their backgrounds, heritage, experience, DNA, any of those things, doesn't matter. In Christ, in Christ, one message, they become one people. We exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness. Christ came into this world and lived perfect life, fulfilling God's expectation for righteousness. Where Adam failed, where all of us failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus accomplished that righteousness. Went to the cross not because of his sin, but because of ours. And there he died in our place. And now God says those of us who believe the gospel and repent of the sin, that his righteousness is exchanged for our sin. Our sin goes to the cross where Christ died for it. His righteousness is imputed to us so that we stand before him righteous. The only distinction God recognizes is those who are unrighteous versus those who are righteous. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Sin is an impenetrable wall that separates us from God. But Jesus has made a way. He has torn that wall down by his own atoning work at the cross. It doesn't matter how moral or immoral one has lived. It doesn't matter how religious or irreligious you are. It doesn't matter what your DNA says about you. It doesn't matter where you were born, where you were raised, or where you reside now. It does not matter what color skin you have. It doesn't matter what your age is. It does not matter how much education you have or how little. It doesn't matter how clear or confused you are about gender at this moment. What matters is that you confess your sin and turn to Christ. This is the one true gospel message. And in Christ, believing the gospel, repenting, of sin and turning to Christ, all are one in Him. No more distinction. This is the one and true gospel message for all people. Those who hear and believe, God declares righteous in Christ. That's not all there is to it. It doesn't mean that we can live any way we want to. 
But in Christ, we live for him. We live in honor of him and his name by his power through the indwelling of his spirit in us. So our fourth point, in Christ, we are one people. Notice what the text says here in verse 44. While Peter was still preaching the gospel, while he was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The ones who truly heard, that is, they received. Akuo, this word means it's the same word that was used in Luke chapter 11. You remember when Mary was seated before the Lord, Martha was running around all busy and taking care of everything. And it says that Mary was listening. Jesus says she has heard, she has listened, she has received what has been said. She has received it inside of her. It's the same word that's used here. So they received the gospel. They received the message of salvation that Peter had preached. And when they received it, the Holy Spirit, it says, fell upon them. The Holy Spirit came upon them, was poured out even on the Gentiles. You think that doesn't get some attention. Peter must have had some clue what was taking place, right? Peter must have understood that something was taking place and kind of expected this. But for the average Jew, even the average believing Jew, this had to be a shocker. What had happened at Pentecost with those Jewish followers of Christ now was happening to these Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was coming upon them. And the evidence of it was the same. They were speaking in tongues. They were filled with the Spirit. And there's no mistaking what this means. They have been received into God's family with believing Jews. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. And I, I want to read what he wrote because I think it's important. It's important for us. It's important for the times in which we live. It's important for us as we think about merging two congregations together. Because we're constantly aware. The enemy's constantly whispering in our ears about things and reasons and attitudes and opinions and preferences and things that divide us but as God's people there is no division Ephesians 2 beginning with verse 11 therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision <laughs> the, the Jew, Gentiles were called uncircumcised by the Jews who were circumcised which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. <laughs> Don't you love that? You who were far off, not out of God's sight, but far, far off, so far off that we couldn't find our own way home. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his flesh broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One new people in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen and amen. Christ makes us one even though we are incredibly diverse. Across this room, no two people in here look alike. No two people have the same personality. You may have similar personalities, but no two people are exactly alike. Diversity. Our backgrounds are different. Our opinions are different. You name it. The differences are innumerable. And yet in Christ, we are one. This is the beauty of God's glory displayed in his church, that he takes all these diverse people, all these diverse people who have no similarities other than that we stand on two legs, right? It makes us one in Christ. One body. One body through Christ's blood. People of all languages, tribes, nations are one. This should cause us all to examine our hearts and attitudes and traditions. Am I allowing partiality to influence me in any way? You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and he had an edge. He had an edge in his tone when he wrote to them about when they were coming to the Lord's table. And he said, you're coming to the Lord's table, but you're not coming as one. You're coming in factions. You're showing partiality toward one another. You're having nothing to do with certain kinds of people. You, you sit with those that you like and you don't sit with those you don't like and you look across the room and sneer at one another. Oh, you didn't say that. That's my, that's my uh, interpretation. They had self-serving motivations, not Christ-honoring passion. Christ-honoring passion says we put our, our shoulder to the unity of the body. We put our shoulder to the oneness of the body. We work and we strive for unity. And we fight for it. Not against one another, but for the unity of Christ. Because it's His reputation that's at stake. It's His glory that's at stake. It's His display of his honor that's at stake it's not our church it's not our body it belongs to him he died he shed his blood for it not me not you he did 
And he says we are one in him. Our job, our assignment is to take him at his word and to defend it and to work diligently to preserve it. Are you truly in Christ today? As we prepare to come to the table today, we remember his precious blood that grants us forgiveness. We remember the righteousness that is imputed to us who believe. We remember that his Holy Spirit indwells us. We remember that we are one in Christ. Are you in him today? If you believe his gospel and repent of sin, he will redeem you. Even now, even where you sit. Are you walking in intimate fellowship with Christ? If not, if you will simply ask him, he will reveal to you the things that you may be harboring in your life that has caused your intimacy to be fragmented. Ask him for forgiveness that you may approach his table in intimacy with him and in fellowship with one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful, thankful for the glory of the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom of the church. Lord, we thank you for the oneness that is ours and promise in provision, in the sealing that you have provided for us. And may it be in the practical way that we live and conduct ourselves, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. May your oneness be at the heart of our desire. May it compel us to seek your forgiveness and reconciliation to you and to one another. But we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.